everyone and welcome to the Dear Dyslexic podcast series. I'm your host, Shay Wissell. Before we get started, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which I live and work, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and to pay my respects to elders past and present. This podcast is proudly sponsored by a DDF community member. If you love our podcasts, then why not sponsor one today? Find out how at dyslexic.com. Today, I'm thrilled to be speaking with Ben Fogarty. Ben is a barrister at the Demon Chambers with expertise across a number of areas of law, including discrimination law, specialising in disability discrimination. Ben was part of our 2021 Disability Conference and his presentation was so well received, I wanted to have a follow-up conversation with him about his work and disability law. Ben has worked for a number of organisations, including the Intellectual Disability Rights Service, Darwin Community Legal Service and the New South Wales Disability Discrimination Legal Centre. We hope you enjoy this podcast today. Thank you for coming on the show, Ben. Thanks for having me, Shay. It's a pleasure to talk some more and um, share my knowledge about uh, disability discrimination law but other laws in that may assist people with dyslexia. Can you give us a little bit of background on your where you've worked and what, how you've helped previously? Sure. So just recently I clocked over or clicked over 10 years of, as being a barrister in New South Wales. Um, prior to that, for 12 years I was a lawyer, I think. I've been sort of doing legal stuff for 22-odd years. The latter parts of that, probably eight or nine years, I worked in community legal centres, which I just I absolutely loved. The first one was Redfern Legal Centre uh, in Sydney. The next one was New South Wales Disability Discrimination Legal Centre. Then I went to Darwin for a bit, uh, to Darwin Community Legal Service, back to Sydney to Intellectual Disability Rights Service, now called now called Ability Rights Service, um, also in Sydney, obviously supporting and giving legal advice to people with cognitive disability. Then I just did at Homeless Persons Legal Service. That was my last solicitor job. And in between that, I did some work in one of the big law firms, um, and I'll probably come and talk a bit more about the big law firms in Sydney in their pro bono section I filled in for a partner there who was uh, having maternity leave. So, yeah, I've and I taught criminal law along the way as well at one of the unis in Sydney at UNSW, so I've kept myself on my toes that way. Um, so, yeah, I've done disability discrimination law probably since 2004 when I, when I was a principal solicitor at Disability Discrim Legal Centre and then I've continued to do it all along the way. And I've got a matter right now that, fingers crossed, is just about to settle for a, a young person with physical disabilities um, that's gone to the federal circuit court, sorry, federal court, where, again, I might talk about that later, about where things can end up going to. So, so how did you get, because uh, working in law, you can, there's so many different areas that you could be working in. What attracted you to working in this space? Like my whole career probably, I... <laughs> I meandered around, so I left. I left uni and got a summer clerkship, and which means you know you go into these big law firms and they schmooze you, and you know it's never. Well, I knew it was never going to last forever because uh, I, you know, I wanted to do sort of soulful work with the greatest of respect to those those places. So then I kind of left that that realm after four or five years, and I had said to myself that I would always volunteer and just never never did that, and felt a bit bad about never having done it. So. I had my teaching gig at uni part-time and I was doing some tutoring as well. And, and so I went to Redfern Legal Centre. In fact, I went to a few and said, 
I'd like to volunteer. I am a lawyer, but I've worked at the other end of town. Can can I do something? And they took me on board and they re-engineered my brain to be able to speak to people as opposed to corporations. <laughs> and then uh, the job came up across the road. It was literally across the road. At, they were looking for a principal solicitor at the Disability Discrimination Legal Centre. And um, I don't know, I just loved it. I, I loved um, and still do love helping individuals and just the feeling that you're achieving a result for an individual that particularly where if you're doing it pro bono or at a reduced rate, they, they wouldn't other or through legal aid, those persons wouldn't have access to a lawyer at all. So I, I just I don't know, I got a real buzz out of that. I always have. It was this it's a stark difference to the corporations that I used to work for. Again, that's something some lawyers like to do, but I just felt like I was a bum on a seat and if I wasn't there someone else would be there. Whereas Redfern Legal Centre, I can still remember the matters. This was two thousand and three or four, you know, I can they still sit in my brain about people that I helped and how grateful they were. I was really moved by the genuine gratitude that humans would give me or people would give me that I hadn't found in my career so far. So it's continued and, you know, really, I, I mean, I do work I do work these days, employment work for um, respondents, um, but I like to think too that I bring a sort of fairness to that and understand both sides and most of those matters, many matters resolve and mediate, they don't run, so, yeah. Well, thank you, because <laughs> I know there'll be a lot of people out there that not just that you've helped, but that you will continue to help, and it's um, such an important area. We get a number of calls through our 1800 helpline, which is a peer support helpline, really. People coming to us that feel they may have been discriminated against. Um, what we see come up frequently is people actually graduating and then not being able to pass the registration and so trying to help them navigate to a certain point where then they need to decide do they get legal support or who do they go to to get that help. So we're yeah. not a legal service at all. That's not my yeah. background. So when people or people that have dyslexia, because I think one of the key challenges for workplaces is they don't have a really good understanding of or awareness of dyslexia yeah. and that it is a disability under the Disability Act and that people can be discriminated against if they don't access the reasonable adjustments or the supports that they require based on their disability. Yeah. So I think that's one of the challenges in the workplace. But how do you how do people go about seeking that support if they're struggling in the workplace or they feel that they've been discriminated against? And I mean that's a huge question, and mm. we don't have a lot of time. But maybe if you could um, give some thoughts around some starting blocks for people uh, that may be feeling this this is happening to them. Yeah. Okay, a few things to think about, hoping not to teach people to suck eggs, but always try and resolve it with the employer. Obviously, if it's an employment context, um, try and do it informally. New South Wales, Anti-Discrimination New South Wales or ADNSW and the Australian Human Rights Commission, the two uh, bodies that you take a complaint to in New South Wales at least, um, will always ask you, have you tried to resolve it informally? Most people have. That's what we try and do, don't we? Try and sort it out and not have to make it go any further. Both of those ports of call um, and you can bring a Disability Discrimination Act for the disability of dyslexia in employment to either of those places. There's two separate uh, acts that um, provide that that right So, um, and both of those avenues, both the ADNS, ADNSW and Australian Human Rights Commission um, try to resolve matters without lawyers by way of conciliation. Uh, if one side wants to bring a lawyer and the other side, that is the complainant, the person doesn't have one, they'll make sure that it's a sort of fair playing field when it's a conciliation. So 
the starting point, I know people will say um, I've been, I'm nervous, but this, those two organisations support people to bring matters to conciliation. They'll assist people when, you know, they'll file a complaint. They'll say to them, you know, is there anything else you want to add to it? They're, they can't advise them, but they'll make sure that they um, they have everything they need to go into to a conciliation. Um, now, you know, most conciliations resolve matters. Um, some don't, and when they don't, that's when you need to think about whether you go to court and be, definitely at that point you'd want to talk to a lawyer. Some people might say along the way, I, I don't feel that I, you know, I want some support going in there. That's fair enough. Advocacy groups, I know, um, you know, depends on disability, depends on where you are and sometimes they're few and far between. But an advocate may assist a person just to be there to support them through the conciliation process. And I don't see why the Commission or the Anti-Discrimination Board wouldn't allow that as long as that person, you know, in the conciliation just sort of abided by the rules and just supported the person. If you're a union member, they might support you. Although I've heard mixed reviews about about unions, and you know they don't often have the expertise, and they'll their lawyer might have to do employment law and you know all different sorts of law, and may be reluctant to run into run into an area that they're not familiar with. So that may not always be a, a place you can rely on. Unfortunately, there are a couple of legal centres, um, Australian Centre for Disability Law in Sydney. Again, very limited resources. They do discrim work, and they would be a place to go to. Is that na- so nationally anyone could access their service? Yeah, yeah. so that, that used to be New South Wales Disability Discrimination Legal Centre where I worked, but then they got some different funding and they're now, they're now national and they're not just discrimination. But I saw their annual report because I'm a member of theirs a couple of days ago and it's still 80% of their work is discrim. There are also some other legal centres and I've been out of the loop a bit for a while, but um, there are some in other states. So I know Victoria's got a couple of dis- disability rights places, Villa Manta, some others that specialise in, in disability. Um, I want to say AED Legal down in, in Victoria do a lot of employment law for people with disabilities. So <clears throat> there are other places. If you, you Google um, NACLAC, I think it is, N-A-C-L-C, there's you know, community legal centres, Victoria, New South Wales, Australia, you'll find and just work your way through that. Um, you'll find the, the legal centres. But again, they're, you know, most of them have very limited resources and such a such a, a big market of people that need their help. Some of the big legal centre, uh, legal firms, so uh, the place I worked at, a, a number of them will do discrimination work, but I suppose it's finding out who they are, how to contact them. And, and they have, um, you know, they, they have their parameters around who they support, but they do discrimination work. Probably you need Australian Centre of Disability Law or someone like me just to make that contact first and say, I'll speak to them. But equally, if you go onto their websites, you know, they're the bigger ones that, that run in most of the cities across Australia, you can look up, if you just Google pro bono and look up law firms, you'll start seeing some and it's nothing to stop you to pick out the phone and give him a ring. In fact, I recall doing, I referred a, a, a client, a fellow with dyslexia um, many years ago from the centre across to one of the law firms to help in a, in, a, in a matter now that I think about it some time ago. So, yeah, there are those areas of support. Legal Aid New South Wales, I can't speak for Victoria and Queensland, but they're pretty similar, I think. They have a human rights section that will take on matters in limited budget. They'll take on matters where there's, you know, real systemic change that could happen from it so again you know there might be someone with dyslexia and employment or even with respect to a service where 
you know, you can see, wow, if this is happening in this office here and it's a national office or in this shop here and, it's a, you know, it's a chain store across Australia um, and the person can't get in informal resolution, it might be one that Legal Aid says this is, this is a good one, this is one that we want to take on. So there are a range of, of different places if a person has a, a, a claim that looks, looks systemic. There are pro bono places there's Legal Aid to talk to. Thank you for listening to this podcast. The D-Hub is our digital learning space where you can access our first Australian e-learning courses for those working and supporting dyslexic employees, as well as webisodes, online courses, communities of practice, and much, much more. So head to the D-Hub today and start your learning journey. dhub.ddyslexic.com Places like yourself and, and different advocacy groups that know more can almost be the middle person between someone like me or those law firms and the person who just goes, I've no idea how I'd find a lawyer and do I have to pay and how much would it cost? Because, you know, these matters aren't about million-dollar matters, so there aren't private lawyers who are going to take these matters on. They're usually about, I'll say, the principle of the matter, and that's as important as anything in my view. So there's very few privates that you could, that one, that I would trust know the law and, and two, that you'd send a person to and, they're going to spend thousands of dollars on a matter that really, you know, the service or the employer shouldn't have done in the first place. So, yeah, they're limited. But if you can get through to some of the people like myself or other the firms or legal aid or what have you, they'll be able to steer people in the right direction. And so through your working career, have you had or seen many cases where someone with dyslexia has taken an employer or an organisation to court I've seen, I remember one in particular, a <laughs> big private school in Sydney where uh, I acted for the parents um, and and forgive me, I, I know there's dyspraxia, there's dyslexia, there's a range of dis- different different um, disabilities that um, I don't know enough about, um, <laughs> but I think this was more of a, this involved and you might say this is this is an aspect of dyslexia is um, the processing between this child's looking on the board and writing down and they needed supports around that their brains mm-hmm. really as you again not suggesting people with dyslexia aren't really bright of course this kid was super bright and he was in an excelling class and he's in a this school is renowned for getting brilliant brilliant marks so he could do a lot of amazing things but there were certain things he couldn't do with respect to stuff written on the board and the school just refused to do it i think they thought we don't want someone like this going through the HSC, la, 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 It was also a political school and there was a lot of pressure being put on by some powerful old boys and I, I'm trying to remember what the result was but we took it on for a while and, and I think in the end, sadly, we, and this often happens in education matters, is that the, the, the blood is so bad and there's so much mistrust, distrust between parent and school and principal that the, the only sad, sadly the only outcome that's going to work for for the sanity of the child and the parents is to go to a different school. I think that's what happened, but we gave them a red hot crack. So that was an education matter. I think that was when I was at the Disability Discrimination Legal Centre not long after. Another one was, and this, I'm pretty sure this is the fellow who I referred off to another, to the firm, but I helped him for a while. This involved a an MP's office asking and demanding that this person only contact that office by writing. I hope I don't give this away for someone who might be listening to this, but I'm de-identifying as best I can. But just a shocker, the MP obviously didn't like this one of his constituents because this constituent um, exercised a democratic right to be telling his MP certain things. 
and he'd come down or he'd ring and this MP turned around knowing knowing that my client had dyslexia and said, no, no, next, um, I'm not refusing you access to my office. What I'm telling you is you've got to put it in writing before you get you get here. I mean, I just couldn't believe it. I, I should have believed it. I, we then went and had a meeting with this MP and the client came with me. I've got to say this is pretty wet behind the ears in those days. I'm a lot more robust now, but I've never felt more intimidated and bullied by this MP in this meeting, he gave us about five minutes very before this was. We had to go down to Parliament. Went to his office. Just yeah, it was amazing. And he said, oh, "I got to go now." The bells were going. He ran off down to Parliament. And so, those are the two that stick in my mind. Some time ago, not not what great outcomes. And that one, I, I think, in the end, he backed off because it was a lay, I, it was a lay down misere. There was no reason why. You know, if we'd run that, if we'd run that through to, um, I, I think we were. I think we were. He was about to file in the anti-discrimination board as it then was so under the state act but either way there was just no there was no defense that that mp could have could have run to defend that it was just it's just being excuse my french and a-hole um and didn't want this guy to be to be exercising his right i mean you're an mp mate um suck it up this guy <laughs> was a lobbyist and someone who was in your constituency you needed to listen to him i haven't had a lot of um others than that i remember one and I can't remember whether it was a matter we took on or whether it was one that I read it so long ago, but in terms of a, and it gets down to this defense of inherent requirements, which, which some of the people that come to you might hear about, which is where you can't adjust, where you're asking for a reasonable adjustment that so affects or changes the role, i.e. it removes parts of the role that inherent requirements that the law says, well, the employer is entitled not to make that reasonable adjustment and they're not actually breaking the law. So there was a case about a fellow who needed to read. It was a warehouse case from memory and it might have been a matter that came to us and he he couldn't, there were aspects of the reading of these, of, of signs in this warehouse that he had trouble with. I can't, so long ago now, I can't remember. I think we did resolve it and there might have been a, a really clever way with colour coding or numbering that he was fine with that they could do it. And so I think we might have been able to get a resolution, but... Yeah, I haven't had one for a, for a long time, not at the bar. So I'm not sure whether people are just, you know, who knows, you, you probably know better than me as to why people, they just cop it or, you know, the classic, I don't know if I talked about it now, I can't remember what I said. I don't think I did in my talk for your conference, but, you know, people that come to you would talk about the age-old um, problem with an invisible disability. When do I disclose that I have it? Do I do it at the interview? How do I do it? When do I do it? Why do I do it and why is it relevant? And... It's all well and good for me to pontificate and say, well, they can't do this and this, but are you ever going to be able to prove why you didn't get the job Um, was because of your dyslexia because you disclosed it? Um, And it's interesting you raise that because through the research I'm doing, uh, we've been interviewing people with dyslexia and that's been one of the initial barriers is where people have asked for reasonable adjustments mm, in an interview mm, and they said, I just give it your best shot. You'll be mm, right or... And they haven't got those jobs. And that's the thing, you can't say, well, it's because of my dyslexia. But uh, it feels like it's because of their disability. And if they'd had those reasonable adjustments, then they probably would, well, they would have been able to do a better job at the application. Doesn't Mm. mean they might have got the job, but at least they were able to work to the best of their ability. Mm. And I think we could probably have a whole other podcast on reasonable adjustments and that conversation around when does it become not reasonable? Mm. So I won't take us down that rabbit warren today. I, I mean, I mean, 
the the most inane but accurate response to that is that each each set of circumstances turns on its own facts. And that's just important for people to realise that just because Jack down the road got a job and their employer adjusted it doesn't necessarily mean that my employer is discriminating against me if they're not giving me that adjustment. It's quite subtle and, you know, because your employer might have a greater income, my role might be slightly different to Jack's. It's, yeah, it's, it's really until you know all of the relevant circumstances of the situation, it's hard to kind of say to someone, oh, yeah, you should run your case because they don't have a leg to stand on with inherent requirements or those adjustments they suggested, you know, do fall short and, and the ones you argue are reasonable and they should have made them. Um, yeah, yeah, it's a tough one to it's, answer off the cuff. It's a difficult area, isn't it? But I, And I wonder whether um, that's why people don't push forward and get the support or take it further. They just quit that job yeah, and say I, it's too hard. And I think in most cases it's probably people leave the job. I think that's right. They leave the job and they don't have the energy to have a fight or, or knowledge that there's anything much they can do about it. And it may have become normalised for them. They may have, that may have been what's happened to them for most of their lives and careers. So, yeah, it's quite sad. And, again, if you're running a discrim case <laughs> against an employer, it's probably almost too late. The human, the, you know, the human interaction and the ability to continue to work with them, you're probably, if you haven't been able to informally resolve it with them, then, then you're probably not going to keep the job or you're not going to want to. Sadly, you know, always in disability, the disability rights space, changing attitudes and and making people empathetic and, you know, that's what it is at the end of the day. Disability discrimination is about walk in my shoes or push yourself in my chair for a day and I think pretty quickly you'd, you'd resolve the complaint. It's really about understanding and that you can't change. You can't change ignorance overnight. You can't change stereotypes. We see it everywhere in all sorts of discrimination but particularly disability and, and the stats, you know, there's, I've been reading stats for years in, in employment work and policy work we used to do in the centres about people with disability statistically uh, are more loyal uh, employees than people without disability. They get a job um, and they stick to it and, and they're hard, you know, gen, that, that's what the stats show and they've shown that for years. I know, um, you know, part of um, what I've told you, I'm on, on the Disability Royal Commission, and I know recently they had an, an employment one. Might be worth people having a look at that, where Graham Innes, former Australian Human Rights Commissioner, spoke, and I think they're going to do another one next year on the topic of employment. It was only a couple of weeks ago. It was before the public hearing I was involved in, and Graham talked about. He gave evidence and talked about the stats. Those sorts of stats again, more more up to date ones, but that. That might be interesting for people who are interested, and really, it's something if people aren't aware, people with dys- dyslexia aren't aware. It's you know, it's about them as well. It's about violence, um, neglect, exploitation, etc. But it covers it, it, it's wide ranging. It's covering whole area, whole areas. Um, the Disability Royal Commission website's pretty accessible, and you can get. I think you can access all of the transcripts, you know, audios, all that sort of stuff. It's totally accessible. So if people are interested in looking at that and, and it's it'd be a public hearing on employment in December or November, maybe late November this year. So this or year, twenty yeah. so it just happened. Yeah, it just 21. happened. Oh, okay. I, I yeah. heard in the media I was too busy preparing for my own. And I think <laughs> it was only a very short one, a day or two and so I think there might be a follow up one next year on again on the topic of employment for people mm-hmm. with disability. That's 
that would be good to watch that space and to learn more about. In your, with your experience, are there some key things that employers could be doing? I mean, we, you just touched on empathy and walk in my shoes. Is there anything practically that you think employers could be doing to better support their employees with disabilities, whether it's dyslexia or just in general? Mm. It's hard to say. I mean, you would have thought, uh, I mean, I, I, with, with COVID and the effects on, uh, you know, the employment market and the, and the really volatile employment market we have, and I know it affects different areas, you know, obviously not suggesting people all become fruit pickers because we can't get, you know, <laughs> Polynesian people and Kiwis to come over and, and, and pick all the fruit. But, you know, I would have thought, at the moment in, in a lot of industries and I see it even if I go past cafes or restaurants and I know they're, they're struggling with it, we're going to close down again. But I would have thought now is a time where employers are really looking for employees and ought to be a bit more broad-minded about who they take on and if people are keen and, and willing to work and they have to make a few adjustments that they would want to take them on and if they find them loyal and willing to do all sorts of shifts to and being flexible with if things change, that really there's a bit of a shift in favour of employees, uh, but I don't don't know about that. Some of the bigger organisations, and this is what Graham Innes talks. I know he talks about this and talked about this in his evidence at the Royal Commission recently. The you know the bigger private employers like the Woolworths and Coles, and then obviously Commonwealth and state governments um, having to meet quota and, and, and percentage of, of employing people with disability and they really should be pulling their fingers out and doing that. You know, he has ideas around how governments and contractors should view big organisations to to do a due diligence and check and say, all right, well, how many of your employers and coals have a disability, you know, even on diversity and other things. But so there are ways that business and government can drive that change better, I think, by kind of demanding that, you know, if you want a government contract, then we want to know A, B and C about your workforce. Without, and I think without that kind of top level driving, then it's really, that's that's sort of changing attitudes by the bottom dollar. Um, and, and as I said, you can't change attitudes usually overnight, but the bottom dollar, you know, the bottom line, I should say, might, might change things a bit more. Um, it's really hard to say. I, I guess my mind's swimming through all different sorts of of jobs, and you know, from a carpenter to a lawyer to a there's all sorts of different things they 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 can can do. It's really just value, you know, seeing a, seeing a, a new employee and the value they bring to you, and you know whether there are different aspects of them that are strong. It's like all of us. I'm 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 you know not I'm not certain strong in certain parts of being a barrister, and other parts I'm stronger. Same with all employees. There's just it's having a mindset where you focus on what's what's the value this person brings to me. Well, they're loyal. They've never turned up late. They're really keen to learn. What do I have to do? Well, you know, I just have to do a toolbox talk in the morning to rather than just send the email the night before and just go through the bullet points. And I have to have my phone on me to if they need to be reminded or ring me. I'm just thinking about this lecture as a point that I'm there and I can just speak to them. Um, I think technology, <laughs> technology is, 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 you know, is incredible. And I have friends who are blind. And so one is a partner in the big law firm that I worked pro bono in. He's, 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 Darren's incredible. And technology has changed and, may, and enabled him to do that role like, like nothing before. So technology for your dyslexia and 
all the voice apps and all that stuff we've got now, I think has to really be not only assisting the person to access that and break down barriers around them in their environment, but employers too can use that kind of technology to as an adjustment to meet the inherent requirements. There's so much more, you know, drag and speak, all this stuff you can use. I'm I think even an example of and I can't remember the name of it, but I know there's a second series coming up this year. You probably know about it. It's it's the ABC with Jay on it. Um the ABC uh, yeah. documentary Lost for Words. We lost for words and yeah. my wife and I watched that. We loved it. And the, I can't think of his name, but the Pommy, Pommy guy, um, how he was, I mean, it was painstaking, but it was, I thought that's really clever is that he, you know, he'll read into it or take a photo or that just the ingenuity for him to, okay, it took him a lot longer than it would take me to go around, but he was still capable of doing it because of technology. And I thought, wow, you know. Yeah, and I felt really sad when they took it away from him. Yeah, because yeah, I was I, like, no. I was like, no, but that's not fair because that's how he would manage yeah. like day to day. I, you yeah. know, I, I now am becoming more and more reliant on Siri because she, he, it, <laughs> it helps me significantly. Yeah. And yeah. I, like, I wouldn't have been able to travel or drive a car without technology because I would get so lost. I'd have to call my sister, and she'd have to look up in the malways. That's how old I am now. For people who don't know what a Malway oh, is, <laughs> it's a book that has maps in it. Yeah. Um, and she would have to try and find where I was mm. in the Malways and then try and help me get out of where I was because I would get so lost. So technology has enabled me to travel the world on my own to do so mm. many things. Mm. Um, and for employers that are listening or managers out there, you can also access government funding to help fund mm. some of this mm. Uh, assistive technology and some of it is free some of it's at a such a low cost as well um, there's a variety of different things that we can use now to help in the workplace but yes technology is key I think yeah uh, in enabling us to to work though I still need a human being to read my work <laughs> technology hasn't quite got to that level yet for me if we're looking um from the person with the disabilities perspective, are there some key points you could summarise for our listeners before you said, you know, mediation and trying to raise the issue with your employer or your institution um, first? But are there some key steps that you could just summarise for our listeners? Key steps the whole way through? or Yeah, after? probably yeah. if you've gone, if you've medi- tried to work it out um, and when people call us and they um feeling distressed about the workplace usually it's first have you disclosed and to do you have an HR department that you could talk to Mm. and then sometimes people come back to us and they work through uh, how they're going to disclose and we don't say you should or you shouldn't Uh, it's a very personal choice but we give them tools and resources if they want to disclose Mm. and some uh, the feedback we've had from people have done that has been really positive that's good Um, in my most of my jobs, it's never been positive. Yeah. Um, but if people have disclosed and they've they've gone through those steps, are there? Is it coming to someone like us, and then we try and help them find a lawyer? Do you think that's the best step after they've tried to mediate and that hasn't worked? I think I think it probably is, or one of the legal services to see whether they can at least get some advice around you know strengths of taking it as a formal complaint in New South Wales to the Anti-Discrimination Board or also in New South Wales but across Australia, the Australian Human Rights Commission under the Disability Discrimination Act. Um, uh, one thing I would say just 
stepping back is, and you're probably encouraging them to do this, but always, they should always, and whether it's, I guess it might be audio, they should record events as they happen as best they can. So keep a, keep a record, contemporaneous record of what's happening. You know, today I asked Bob if he could, you know, do X, which is an adjustment, and he said, oh, no, it'll take too long. The best you can, just because for lawyer, lawyers later on understanding the intricacies of what's happened, you'd be surprised how sometimes little things can, you know, really assist in understanding the complexities of a complaint. So keep every bit of correspondence, any document, but also do a do an oral audio record of the significant events or encourage if they ring you and say all these things have happened, say, okay, well, well, slow down. Let's work through it. And after this, can you go away and can you do just like a diary, or like a log of what's happened over the last week or even what you remember, even if you can't remember exactly every time and, and date or who said what, just and then just you've know, time stamped it and it might be useful. You can, that, that, you know, courts can have those as exhibits if you need be. It doesn't have to be written. It can be, it can be transcribed after, you know, if it needs to be in a document for a court. So that's really important, just keeping a record of what's been happening for, for posterity. So, yeah, you can't resolve it. I mean, sometimes you get people who, who are at the point where they're saying, being threatened that they've got to resign or be stood down. You know, that's obviously a really difficult time and they know, a time where they really do need a lawyer. The other, the other area I should say so I don't miss it is uh, you can bring the Fair Work Commission under the Fair Work Act. There are, there's a section 351 which prohibits you being discriminated against for race, disability, la, 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 la. So I should also make sure that people are aware they have rights under the Fair Work Act not to be discriminated against. And the beauty of that is that there's also the Fair Work Commission is also has a, you know, it starts out as a file, a document that's pretty accessible, just like the ADB and just like Australian Human Rights Commission, that they're user-friendly. You don't need a lawyer. Um, you know, it doesn't hurt to have a lawyer at the time, but you can... If you're if you're dismissed or or terminated, you you can you, and you you know the the reason is you just think it's so harsh and unfair and it's really because of your dyslexia or and you've asked for an adjustment that you don't think is unreasonable or what have you, um, or even if you do or you think I'm not not sure, that's another port of call they should they should bear in mind if it's employment, particularly if they've just been sacked or they've resigned where they're saying, well, I had no choice but to resign. It was just I couldn't couldn't stay there. Then they need to also, not only if they can't get advice from a disability scrim lawyer, they if they, they, their union may, may be more if they're in a union or another, another lawyer might be able to assist them who does employment industrial law. I should make that very clear because there is that section under the Fair Work Act that brings in protections. And in some cases it can actually be a better, stronger, applicant-friendly type of case to bring than disability discrimination. There's a couple of tricks in there about that put the onus back on the employer to, to show why they dismissed someone and why they terminated them or why do they treated them adversely, that it wasn't because of their disability. So, yeah, much can be... And I, I do... I mean, I do do that work as well, uh, as do a lot of my colleagues in, in these chambers. So it's that's an employment employment sphere. Don't forget there's a protection there. But finding someone to give you some legal advice to really ensure that the complaint or the Fair, Fair Work Commission um, form that you're filing has all the right bits in it. That, I guess, is would is would be useful or a union to person who's familiar with them to say, oh, you know, make sure you've got this, this and this. But if you don't have any of that, that's where I think if you've, if you've kept the record, 
you know, you've got the ins and outs of what's happened. That's the most important thing to include in the complaint. Have have the key parts in there, and and look, as I said earlier, the the Anti Discrimination Board and the Australian Human Rights Commission and the Fair Work Commission receive the forms or complaints. They look at them, they triage them, they will assist a person to ensure they've got all the right material in their form. They're not advising; they're just saying, look, this part of your form you haven't filled this out. Do you want to go away and think about it? So in some ways you get that informal assistance to make sure you get it right enough to get to a conciliation in those in those forums. Um, so you get some of the way there. Sure, having a, a good, knowledgeable, reasonable lawyer at a conciliation against an employer where there is a, obviously a, a power imbalance inherently, yes, that would be wonderful if every single person could get that but that just doesn't that's not reality that doesn't happen but as again going back to some of those those places like legal aid or barristers or others that might do that work particularly if there's systemic value to it that might be something they can take on and assist then very quickly and you might be about to ask me that if you don't resolve a matter at, at, at the fair work commission at the sort of conciliation mediation phase or at the adb or the equivalents across australia or the Australian Human Rights Commission, then each of those places essentially terminates the complaint and then you have a right, you don't have to, but you have a right to bring it to a tribunal or a court and then you really do, yeah, you want at that point, if you're thinking of that, to get some legal advice because if you go through the ADB, you go into a tribunal in New South Wales and it's the same across Australia, like Victoria has VCAT. The Fair Work Commission, because you brought it under the Fair Work division if you, you go up into a federal court or fed, what's called the federal circuit court similarly with the australian human rights commission if you go to court you go to a federal court and it all sounds big and scary and etc the beauty of the tribunal and the beauty of fair work is that it's a no cost jurisdiction so if you go up into the tribunal and the court if you lose unless you do something ridiculous or outrageous or you get an offer that's too good to refuse and you refuse it even if you lose, you don't have to pay the other side's costs. So that's a real benefit. I mean, you still want lawyer, a lawyer, I suppose, to assist you. But in terms of do I, if I go in here and, you know, if I lose, do I pay a million dollars because that's what my employer paid their lawyers? No. Australian Human Rights Commission disability discrimination claims that go to the federal court are a cost jurisdiction. So, yeah, if you run those and lose, you're at risk of, of paying you're not only whatever you pay for your lawyers, if they're charging you, but the lawyers for your former employer. Um, tactically, there can be advantages, though, to to it being a cost jurisdiction. So I've got to say most of the matters I run are through the Australian Human Rights Commission or that I recommend, and then we go off to the federal court because there's a bigger stick to wave because they're matters where I've said you've got reasonable or better prospects of success. A stick to wave at the other side is that they're going to get they're going to have to pay your your bill. I think you've got a strong case. So that sort of swings and roundabouts. It can work in your favour. But if you were going in there and you didn't have a lot of advice but you wanted, you felt strongly you wanted to take it on, the tribunal or the Fair Work Commission are probably the better places to go because um, yeah, you're not you're not running the risk that you're going to get hammered with, with costs of the other side at the end of it. And so what if it's an institution that you're wanting to take for discrimination? Would you go through the Human Rights Commission and then up to the federal court if need be? What do you mean by an institution? Or an organisation. So say um, we've had some people contact us wanting help because they uh, earlier said they've finished their degree 
but they can't pass the registration assessments and they haven't been um, given the reasonable adjustments needed for their disability. You can, sorry, yeah, you can take that either through your, your state or territory um, and discrimination board or the Australian Human Rights Commission. I, I think, yeah, because under under the the area of activity is likely to be education or would be education and that and those are areas protected by both the state and territory anti-discrimination legislation and the disability discrimination act so you've got a choice can i tell people um sklavos if you haven't if you haven't heard of sklavos s-k-l-a-v-o-s against i think dermot Dermatological society, or, or or something, is is this exact case you're talking about, which is a a fellow, and I can't remember his disability, but he asked for adjustments to do the practical course. He goes down in a screaming heap um, because it's about essentially they say, well, you're trying to you're trying to adjust a course in such a way that it really it's a bit of like an inherent requirements or academic integrity of the course. What you're asking for just means it's not the course and you couldn't be accredited to do it. So it's that fine line between is the adjustment just kind of, you know, not so inherent or so profound it's changing it. Or if it is, then they got up on a justifiable hardship and an inherent requirements basis. So it's, it's one to read. It's only a couple of years ago. I think it's, it's definitely in the time where since 2009 we've had the reasonable adjustments under the DDA. Um, it's definitely one in that in that realm where he argued that they failed to make a reasonable adjustment and it was adjustments to that, how he was assessed in that course. So Sklavos is one to read to teach you and they're often, you know, sadly for the, for the applicant they lose but they can help teach others by reverse about what not to do. I mean there's a number of employ- education cases in Victoria more for younger people with disability and, and, and autism and, and developmental disabilities and things, really tricky cases where the, the families and the parents and the student lost uh, and they went off to the federal court and things and against Education Victoria or State of Victoria. So there's a lot to be learned about what not to do, sadly, from those cases and Sklavos is probably the example for specific to colleges, registration, that sort of thing. And there's another one. I'll University of University of Newcastle, my 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 hometown, Newcastle, which is a converse where uh, they they prevailed. I'll email it to you. I doesn't. I don't. I can't remember off the top of my head. It was one brought, unlike Sklavos, who went Australian Human Rights Commission, Federal Court or Federal Circuit Court. This one was run through the Anti Discrimination Board, didn't resolve, and then that went to what's called here the New South Wales Civil and Administrative Tribunal. Uh, and from memory, it was about a, a person with a disability that I think was a woman, and it was her. It was medicine. I think she had a psychosocial disability, and it was about they refused to grant her an extension. Whether it was um, practical, it might have been. You've got to do it within X period of time after your final exams, and she had you know, as as happens with that disability from time to time, periodic ups and downs. And they refused her to do it, and she might have had a couple of, she might have failed a couple of subjects as well, which meant it took her. She kind of took nine years to do a course that you know normally you do four. four. She prevailed. It's a really good case to read. So it's a flip side of Sklavos, not 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 quite there, but interesting example of around um, you know that kind of tertiary 
qualifications finishing uh, institution says no, tribunal says, well, you said no on the base and was on the basis of disability, but your defence of unjustifiable hardship doesn't stack up or what what they were asking for was not unreasonable. So I'll send that to you. I'm sorry I don't have the name off the top of my head. No, that's okay. Newcastle University, it might be six or seven years old now and it, was, it, it's, it, it would be an N, NCAT, I think, if people wanted to, to look for it, but I'll send it to you. That would be great. Thank you. And um, both really interesting cases to, to learn more about because the more people, the more we advocate, the more people coming to us for help. And like I said, we're not in the the legal realm at all. We, um, but if there's information that we can provide to help people think things through, uh, yeah. that's really valuable. And I think this podcast will be uh, extremely valuable to our listeners as well. And even even if they if you read those cases, and sure, there's all the sections and the acts and this and that. But even just reading the they set out the facts, you know, and 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 even I think even reading through it, even if you don't know the law inside out, you, you get a fairly good handle, especially when you've probably got a similar lived experience to go oh yeah or yes this is similar to mine or it's different just to get a feel I don't suggest you can suddenly go off and run a case but it's worth it's worth you know if it's there to having a read and thinking about it uh, and for those of you listening um if it goes up on our website then you can listen to it so you don't have to uh read it as well so we'll make it more accessible for you yeah I'm saying read in the uh in the same <laughs> way I say to my blind friend Darren can you read mate <laughs> Good to see you. <laughs> We're very literal. <laughs> I'm very literal. Uh, no, there's quite a few of us that are very literal. So just so that people know that we're not just talking about reading, you can listen to no. it. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we wrap up today? This has been really informative. Thank you. And again, people can go and listen uh, and watch your presentation. Yeah, it's given me a lot to think about. That's for sure. When we have these calls, I guess it, lawyers need to be careful that they are always aware that it's easy to talk about these things and running off to court and you know I also realize the toll these things can take on individuals who aren't familiar with the system and you know a barrister is dispassionate about those meant to be dispassionate about their case and um, whereas for the client it's it's all about you know a lot of it it's hard to divorce the the emotions and the feelings, etc., from a lawyer who's saying to you, "Well, this is the offer, and this is actually a good one." It's like, really, is this a good one? So, yeah, there's there's the law, and there's reality, and there's lawyers who haven't haven't gone through the experience. So, yeah, just bearing that in mind for people that come along and might speak to a lawyer and think, "Well, they didn't really." I mean, hopefully they get it, but sometimes a really hard decision for a lawyer is to say, "I." And I often say, look, I'm taking a hat off. This is my human hat. You know, if I if someone had treated me like that, I'd be really pissed off, excuse my French, and I would really be angry. But I'll put my lawyer's hat on and these are the difficulties and the stress of running a case and you'll be in it. You know, if we go off to the tribunal or the court, you'll be in a witness box and you'll be cross-examined by someone ugly like me um, who's suggesting that you're the one who's got it all wrong. So, yeah, just to bear all that in mind, having said that, like the stats are pretty good 80 90 percent of of matters conciliate really high proportion they don't run off to court so people shouldn't also listen to that and say oh i won't go off and file a complaint because a lot of them do resolve it's you know the employer's got to spend money on lawyers to go off to a court they don't want to do if they can you know it might be all right well i acknowledge did the wrong thing sure i stuffed up i've now sat in a room and listened to my ex-employer now actually better understand it 
I will give you an apology and then and I'll tide you over X amount of money. So and and I'll I'll undertake to do some training and and you know some amazing things can happen in conciliation. I've been really moved in them and I think they're really important. So I won't undersell the ability to get in there and actually get someone to listen to you. And it can be cathartic for a person, even if they don't get the result that they wanted to get during the conciliation. I've had education matters, parents and, and, and employment matters and just the catharsis and the letting go. I'm like, finally, I've, you know, I've, I thank you so much for being here with me. I don't care that they're not giving me $5,000 or their, their apology is not really that strong. The fact I've stood up for myself, the fact that they might think sec- twice next time if someone like me comes along is, is, is all, you know, so there's a lot of power and empowerment in, in, in conciliations and, and making complaints. So I'd encourage people to, to, to do so and not to, not to balk at it if, 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 you know, they're unfamiliar with it. And my final question now that you've just said that before we go is do you find that most times after conciliation that like everyone at the end of the day wants to do the right thing? Mm. Do you find that it really is generally through ignorance and lack of awareness and understanding that these events occur rather than anything untoward sinister yeah Yeah, i do i do i I do think that and i it's also humans uh you see it a lot in education matters i said it earlier where principal and a parent just can't can't can no longer communicate because each of them thinks they're doing the right thing and that can often happen you know particularly education it's you know this is what we say this is what our specialist says you know we don't have extra people in the classroom and, and there's a whole host of things going on there's Teachers not wanting, you know, so there's so much going on, but one person may not be able to see what the other person's seeing and then they go down a road. It's almost like the the lines, the parallel lines suddenly diverge and they go off and they're never going to come back together. And so there needs to be a circuit breaker or a person in the middle who can can build a bridge again. So um, same with employers. They can form an impression about someone or, I don't know, all the other stresses going on in their business and they can lose sight of the fact they just... Yeah, they can't see through the eyes of the person who's in front of them. I think that's what it comes down to. Yeah, in these matters, and so that's why conciliation. If people can go in there, and they might go in there a bit kind of annoyed or whatever, or thinking, "Oh, I'm just going, I'm just turning up." But yeah, I have seen powerful moments where I've seen both sides. Um, I've seen people shake hands, or you know, the days we could hug people, hug uh, people, and say, "You know, thanks so much. I'm, I'm sorry it didn't work out, but." you know thanks for coming today and i really feel like it's resolved it's um been very rare occasion in almost 20 years of doing conciliations where it's rare that we walk i've walked out with a client who said you know that was the worst thing i've ever done i don't think anyone's ever said it's the worst thing i've ever done it's really powerful well thank you and i think that they're really uh, positive words you used around empowerment and you know getting the opportunity to stand up for ourselves because I think sometimes with a hidden disability so often we don't or we don't have the strength or the courage and I can give you many examples where I've been in those situations and the energy yeah sometimes it's just easier to walk away than to stand up so thank you I hope that this podcast has empowered people and has given them information that they may need and they can um, follow up with us if they have any further questions and we'll put all that information on the website as well so thank you so much for your time no worries to find out more about ben and his work including the articles he discussed today head to deardyslexic.com and if you haven't done so yet make sure you sign up to our mailing list 
so you can keep up to date with everything we're doing, including our advocacy and awareness work, peer support programs, research, and the D-Hub, our digital learning platform for all your needs. If you love this podcast, well, why not sponsor one today? To find out more, head to deardyslexic.com.